0: (laughs) Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you that the new book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, is going to be available this Hanukkah. It's been very, very widely received. we sent out about a 1,000 pre-publication copies to marriage therapists, people who work with young couples, and the response has been really, truly amazing. Please look for it at the T-H-E, com or your local Jewish bookstore. The tells us, My Hanukkah, for what nace was Hanukkah created? Why did Chazal stipulate there should be a yomtiv called Hanukkah? And the Gemara tells us, because the Yavanim went into the Heichal, they were metama, all the shamanim, there were certain oil that was set, separated to be used for the menorah, and the Yavanim found them, and they basically metamaed them, when the Malchus base Chashmanoi, when the Chashmanoi dynasty won out against the Yuvanim, they searched the entire base of Migdish, All they could find was a small flask of oil and that was sealed with the Kohen Gadol seal. That oil was only sufficient to light for one night. A nace happened. They were able to light for eight nights until they were able to get enough oil for rekindling the menorah. The next year, they made it into a Yom Tav, the Yom Tav of Hanukkah. And that's a Gemara. Very clear, the reason Chazal created the Yom of, of Hanukkah was because a little bit of oil that should have lasted one night lasted eight nights. Okay, the only problem with that is, the moral explains, that's contradictory to what we read in the al The al was written by Tanoim hundreds of years earlier than this Gemara, and the al is very, very clear that the reason we have Hanukkah is Al-Al-Nissim V'alagvuras Rav tez rivam, Hashem, you fought a battle. Dan you judge our judgment. Nakam tez you took our revenge. And the Alanisim is very clear. You gave over small amounts to great amounts. You, The the, enemy surrounded us, they attacked us, and you fought our battles, you judge our judgments, you took our revenge. It's very clear from the Alanisim that the miracle of the war, the fact that we beat the Yavanim, was the reason that Chazal made Hanukkah, and yet the Gemara says the reason is the oil. Ask the morale two questions. Number one, the fact that oil lasts is nice, but therefore what? You don't make an entire holiday for thousands of years for an entire nation just because of a miracle of oil lasting. But number two, listen exactly what the Al-Nisim is telling us: it's for the wars, the battles. Hashem, you stood up, they stood to eradicate Torah from the Kalei Yisrael. Hashem, you fought our battles. So the Gemara says it's the oil, and the al says it was the battles. How do we reconcile the two? Explains the moral that in reality, of course, the al is correct. The reason that we celebrate Hanukkah is because Hashem fought our battles for us. We were outmanned, outnumbered, outgunned, and Hashem miraculously saved us. That was the real reason for Hanukkah. However, explains the moral, it wasn't clear to the people of that generation that the miracle of the war was a miracle it looked like it was their might and their gvura. It was only when they lit this little bit of oil, and that little bit of oil miraculously lasted eight days, it was only when they saw the miracle of the oil lasting that that revealed to them that the miracle of the battles was also the Yad Hashem. Until that point, they thought it was their might, their gvurah, and their wisdom, their strength that won them the battle. It was only once they saw the miracle, of the little bit of oil lasting eight days, that it revealed to them that so too were the battle, were miraculous. Each one is correct, explains Moral. The real reason we have Hanukkah is because of the battles. It wasn't clear that it was a miracle until the miracle of the oil. So Chazal, tell us both are the reasons. The real reason is the battle. It wasn't clear that it was a miracle until the oil lasted. But in fact, both are correct, both are right. And this is how the Moral explains the Gemara to be consistent with the Alanisim. And this would be very interesting if it weren't for a very basic fact, and that is history. If we look at even the basic understandings of the historical events that transpired, I think we're going to find this morale very, very difficult to understand. And let me begin with one piece of background. There are two Megillahs written about the time period of Hanukkah. One was re- actually, Rav Sadi Gawin says, was written by the Benei Hashmanoi, Neither Megillah was accepted into the Tanakh, because it was written long after the end of the Tanakh period, but apparently both are considered very accurate, and certainly the one that Rav Shadigon says was written by the Bnei Hashemari, he himself translated into Arabic, so clearly it has a lot of veracity. But in any case, let's look at the historical perspective, let's try to get an understanding of the times. On the twenty-fifth day of Kislev in 168 before the Common Era, Antiochus marches into Yerushalayim. The first thing he does is, he kills 40,000 Jews, he takes another 40,000 as slaves, he then steals the remaining kalim, the golden kalim of the Beit of Middash. he shechs a pig, and he imitates the Avodah. They were pretty learned in the ways of the Jews, and he himself went through all the steps of the Avodah, but instead of a carbon, he took a pig, mocking the Jews, he then brought a harlot into the Katshah <coughs> Kadoshim and performed a sin on top of a Torah scroll, and he set out to eradicate Judaism from the Jewish people. His initial decrees were Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, and Mila. In fact, the term Chashman according to many, is an acronym. Chashman, Ches is for Chodesh. He tried to eradicate Rosh Chodesh. Shin is for Shabbos. Mem is for Milah. The three decrees initially were against Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, Amilah, Chashmanoim, because the Chashmanoim fought to defend against these three decrees, but his decrees did not end there. His decrees were extraordinarily pervasive, and his goal was to eradicate Judaism. But he was not a man to trifle with. He had a very simple punishment. If you violated the rule of the king, you were summarily executed. But He was oftentimes very cruel and barbaric in the way he executed you. The rule for Mila was, if a woman was found giving her son a bris Mila, she was hung, and the baby was hung around her neck, both of them to sit there for the birds of prey to eat their flesh. And it wasn't long before it became extraordinarily difficult to give your child a bris. One Megillah tells us the story of a woman whose husband died, and she goes up to the walls of Yishalayim. And she crawls out to Bagrus, who was one of the generals, and says, Bagrus, you think you've eradicated Brismila from our people? She takes out from under her coat a baby, a mm-hmm. newborn. She takes out a knife, says a brachim, does a Brismila, and she jumps to her death along with the baby because there was no hope. And in a very short time, it became an impossibility to give your child a Brismila within the city of Yushalayim. But the oppression didn't stop there. The oppression was pervasive. And it wasn't just Shabbos, it wasn't just Rosh anything to do with Judaism. As a matter of fact, if you'd like to know how effective their decrees were, in those days we learned Torah from a Torah scroll. That's how. That was the only Saurim we had. At the very end, Yehuda Maccabee, when we won the war, Yehuda Maccabee sends out messages, quickly, quickly, come send scribes, we have found Sifrei Torah. There were no Sifrei Torah in Eretz Israel. They're basically burnt, eliminated, we have Sifre Torus, come send scribes, and you can copy from our text. In a very short time, the Jewish nation were in grave, grave jeopardy. You see, the initial decrees were expanded and expanded, to the extent that within a short time of Antiochus being in the city, he made decrees that anyone walking in the streets of Jerusalem had to wear the Greek coat, had to speak the Greek language, had to wear the Greek hat. Anyone who was seen walking in the streets looked like a Greek, spoke like a Greek, and acted like a Greek. Because in any way, if you acted like a Jew, you were executed. The land was desolate. It started in the big cities, and then began spreading. And after a while, if you wanted to keep loyal to the Torah, you would flee. The only hope was to leave to the small provinces, to the mountains. If you were in a city in Eretz Yisrael, you could not keep the Torah. And if you'd like a perspective on how powerful Antiochus was, let's focus on just some of what the time was like. The Badan Chumash explains to us that this is the second base of Mikdash. The first base of Mikdash, we were autonomous, we were mighty. This is the second base of Mikdash, and there were three things missing from the second base of Mikdash that were in the first. The first is that during the second base of Mikdash, most Jews did not live in Ert If, as a matter of fact, during this time period, there were cities in Alexandria, in Alexandria Egypt, there were shuls that were so large, the Gemara tells us that they used to have flags in the front. To know when to answer Baruch Hu, to know when to answer Rabbah, they would raise a flag because the shuls were so large that you couldn't possibly hear on the back of the shul. Josephus estimates that during this time period, there were at least a million Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt meaning to say most Jews were not living the entire second base of Migdish in Eretzral. Number two, the divine present was nowhere near as felt. You couldn't feel a Shechina anywhere near as much. But number three, even more significant, we were not an autonomous nation. During the entire second base of Migdish. we were under the rulership, we were a vassal nation to the ruling powers of the time. The first base of Migdish is destroyed. After close to the 70 years of Gullahs, Esther, the Purim story, Esther has a son, Dayavish, Dayavish is Jewish, and Dayavish allows the rebuilding of the second base of Migdash. But it was under his permission, under Paras and Madai's provenience, that we were allowed to rebuild the base of Migdash, and we remained under foreign entities, under foreign governments, we were a vassal state during that entire time period. And the Arban explains that we were not independent, we didn't have our own armies, We never owned navies, we were a vassal state, we paid taxes, we obeyed their laws, because we were not an independent nation. In 319 before the common era, Alexander the Great gained world dominion. He was the single ruler of the entire earth, and clearly then at that point Eretzor was under his providence. He was kindly to the Jews, he looked favorably, but in, in his time period he began spreading the Greek culture. He died at a very young age, according to most historians, at the age of 33. He died, and his malucha, his monarchy, was split up amongst the four powers. Those four powers changed hands a number of times, and in 175, before the common era, Antiochus comes to power over that that part of the Greek dynasty, the Yovan-Syria dynasty. The Megillah describes that since the time of Alexander, there had never been such a powerful king. And clearly we paid taxes to Antiochus. We were vassal to him. He was the ruler. The Rabban explains that if it weren't for the Hashmonaim, Noim, Torah We didn't have our own army. The most powerful nation in the world at the time occupies our cities. They have powerful armies, they have powerful legions. We have nothing with which to fight and more than that for centuries we haven't been an independent nation. But if you'd like to know how bleak the situation is is one thing that makes it even more clear. Let's focus on the following fact. In 168 before the common era Antiochus enters the city of Jerusalem. Now that should make you wonder. Jerusalem is on a mountain and the mountain is high up and it's fortified surrounded by the Chomos Jerusalem the walls of Yishalayim were considered impenetrable. In fact, each of the base of Mikdash, when they were destroyed, it was considered a miracle that the enemy was able to destroy the walls. How did Antiochus get into the city? So, at this point, the greek Syrian were the ruling party, Antiochus' nation, and they weren't just a nation-state, they were also a culture. And we Jews, when we live amongst Goyim, oftentimes we look up to the Goyim, oftentimes we try to take on their ways, and the Greek represented the advances in society, the Greek represented the progressive ways, and many, many Jews wanted to be like the Greeks. They were called Mishavnim, and they were Hellenists, they became more Greek than the Greeks. But if you understand the Greek culture, you'll understand that it's quite anti ethical towards being a Jew. Let's begin with the following. The Olympic Games. We know the Olympic Games are created after the Games in Athens, but the Olympic Games are but a mere representation. They're sports. A sports athlete in our day is a person. He may be an entertainer, may be highly skilled, but we understand what he is. In those days, the athletes and the gymnasium represented a culture. That was the Epicurean culture, what we call apikarsim, which represented a culture of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die, and there's no world to come, there's no Olam Haba, the greatest morality is your own happiness, and that was the culture of the Greeks. That Greek Syrian culture of Epicurean, eat, drink, and be merry, was what many, many Jews adopted, what many, many Jews wanted to be like, and you know all the Greek tricks, the vomitorium, where you'd eat, 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 and then you couldn't eat any anymore, so your party had to end, so you went to a place to return what you ate, so you could continue partying. And the Greeks were famous for their various, various activities. But one thing that's very interesting to note is that the Greeks would wrestle in their gymnasium, and that was one of their big events, but they'd wrestle naked. Now, these Jews had a great problem. You could wear the cloak of a Greek. You could learn the Greek language. You could talk like a Greek, But when you wrestle naked, you don't have an Arla. You're clearly not a Greek. The McGill explains to us that many Jews underwent a very painful procedure to stretch the skin so that it would look like they didn't have a brismila. Ad Kach, they went to such an extent that they so much wanted to be more Greek than the Greeks that they adopted the ways, learned the culture, and wanted to be nothing but Greek. And they were at war with Torah, they were at war with the Chachamim, And if you'd like to know how bleak it was, the Megillah opens up that they offered a bribe. You see, they wanted to rename Yerushalayim, they being the Hellenists, they being the Jews who were Misyavnim, who wanted to be more Greek than the Greek. They wanted to rename Yerushalayim Antioch, after Antiochus. And they paid a bribe. They offered 130 talents of silver for Antiochus to open a gymnasium in Yerushalayim. Now you may say, what's the big deal about opening a gymnasium? Maybe it's a YMCA. If you understand the Greek culture, it was the base of Arozara. That's where you served Mercury, Zeus, whatever your gods were. And they <clears throat> realized that Antiochus didn't dare do it because it would mean a war. They paid a bribe of 130 talents of silver. A talent is about 50 pounds. They paid a huge sum of money to pay for the soldiers that would have to protect this base, like this Place of al in Yerushalayim and the Megillah opens up with the fact that that's what Antiochus did. He opened this base Mishak and according to many sources if you'd like to know how Antiochus entered the city of Yerushalayim the Mishavnim, the Hellenists opened the doors for him. They opened the doors for their hero to march in. And to give you a perspective on how bleak the situation really was, the Megillah shares with us an interesting story at the very beginning of the story there were a thousand Jews who were in a cave, and the Yevonim, the Greek soldiers, found out about them, and they called into the Jews in the cave, Come out, drink our wines, eat our food, be one with us, and you'll live in peace. And it was a meeting amongst the Jews inside the cave. And they said, It's Shabbos now. If we're going to leave and fight, we're going to Michalo Shabbos. They sent out a message we're not leaving the Avonim lit a fire at the mouth of the cave, they blew the smoke in, and a thousand men, women, and children were killed. When Antiochus heard about this, he was furious. They were armed. They outnumbered the Avonim. Why didn't they go out and fight? And I heard of Shmuel Irons offer a possible explanation. Because Allah is, now, because you'll keep many Shabbosim, that's why you're allowed to save a life. That's why you're allowed to fight. But they realized, yes, we're going to win now, but by next Shabbos or the Shabbos thereafter, we're going to either be killed or after Mechal Shabbos. There was no point. They realized the situation was so black, so unlikely that they would succeed, that they felt they'd better off die innocent, and that's how they went to their death inside the cave. To understand how the revolt actually began, the McGill explains to us that it wasn't a planned revolt. The way Antiochus planned the taking of Eretz Israel was city by city. After the cities were all taken, and then they would go into the small, outer provinces. There was one province called Modais, which is about 10 kilometers from Yerushalayim, and in that small little province lived the Kohen Gadol, Matashow. <clears throat> had five sons, Yehuda was the Bachar, Shimon, Loza, Yochanan, and Yonasan. And when the Greek soldiers came to that area, they brought all the Jews to the center of town. And the bekid, the officer who was in charge, recognized Matashio as the Kohen Gadol, even though at that point he wasn't acting as the Kohen Gadol, even before because it was a bought position, but the Jews recognized him as such. And the bekid calls out to Matashio, Matashio, you are the head priest. I want you to serve first. Serve our gods, drink our wine, eat our foods, and you'll ride on the king's horse. You'll be treated with great honor. As the bekid, as the officer said those words, another Jew rushed forward and said, "No, let me be the first one to serve your gods." Matashon, when he saw that, was so infuriated he reached under his robe and took out a sword and stabbed that Jew. He then jumped to the bekid. Then his brother, his sons ran out. They began slashing and killing. There weren't many soldiers there, and the five sons killed out all of the soldiers, and the rebellion began. But it wasn't a rebellion, because they didn't plan this rebellion. And they didn't start a war. What they did was they fled to the mountains. There were five sons and one Cohen Guttle who just did something that was considered absolutely insane. They basically attacked the most powerful nation in the world with six people. And there was no army. There was no war. They escaped and they hid in the in the, in the mountains. And if you'd like to know how the beginning process started, there weren't wars. Initially, the five sons would wait for the Yvonne soldiers to come through a mountain pass. They would jump on them and kill them, take their weapons. And slowly, slowly, guerrilla skirmishes, small little battles. But the word began spreading. The Koenigadal and his sons is in Yerushalayim, outside Yerushalayim. They're in the mountains, they're fighting. And some Jews began joining them, some Jews began joining them. For an entire year, there was not one battle between the Mishyam, between the Yavanim and the Machabim, because there was no Jewish army. But as the forces began gaining, Yehuda became the leader, and they began getting a reputation of being a powerful force to reckon with. And at that point, Antiochus decided that he's going to wage war against these Jews. And he sends his general Apollonius. Apollonius was a <coughs> well-known general, had won many wars for Antiochus, and he heads out with literally thousands of soldiers, and this was the first battle that Yehuda Maccabee fought against this Apollonius. Apollonius lands on the shores of Eretzol with thousands and thousands of foot soldiers, and many, many cavalry, and Yehuda Maccabee and his men gathered against them. and clearly it was to be a rout, there was no way they'd win, but somehow it was that they won, not only did the Jews won, Yehuda killed Apollonius, took his sword, and from that moment on, every battle he waged, he carried Apollonius' sword into battle. Now at this point, Antiochus realized he had a problem on his hands, because one of his main generals was just destroyed. <clears throat> they were outnumbered, but I mean they were clearly routed. So he sends Siron. Siron was a Yavan general, and <clears throat> Siron decided he was going to take revenge by personally killing Yehuda. Now, you should know something interesting. We have a tachanah from the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, that before going to war, the day before war, every Jewish soldier would fast. It was the day of tshuva, and day of preparing. Yehuda knew that Siron's men were going to attack the next day, so they sat in Tainus, and towards the end of the day, when their fast is almost completed, at that moment they were surrounded and attacked. They miscalculated. It was supposed to be the next day, but Siron attacked them earlier. And at which point his men said, we're going to be destroyed. How can we fight? Says Yehudah Maqabee these words, let us fight and die, al Kiddush Hashem, better we should die this way, for the honor of Hashem's name. And that's what they all knew. They were so outnumbered, so outmanned, and it was the end of a fast day. They were tired, they were weak. But not only did they win, they destroyed that entire army. They took all of the uh, enemy's weaponry, and they took whatever they could from them. And in fact, they were now a major force to be reckoned with. And at this point, Antiochus realized that he has a real problem on his hands. Because they were becoming a force that was known, that was recognized, and many Jews were now beginning to join them. So at this point, he sends Nicanor to Yerushalayim. Nicanor was a soldier, he was a general in Antiochus' army. Nicanor lands on the shores of Ertzol with 40,000 foot soldiers and 7,000 cavalry. But Nicanor wanted to ingratiate himself with Antiochus. And he told Antiochus he's going to solve the national debt. You see, a number of years earlier, in 199 before the Common Era, Rome and Yovum, the Greek dynasty, fought a war. And the Yovonim lost. And from that time on, there were two stipulations in the peace treaty. Number one, every year the Yovonim nation would have to pay a tax to Rome of 2,000 talents of silver. Number two, they can never use battle elephants again in war. Nicanor said to Antiochus, Your Majesty, I know that it's soon time for you to pay the 2,000 talents of silver. I know his king's coffers are empty, and you don't have the money to pay. I would like to take care of the problem. Allow me, Your Majesty, to solve the national debt. What was Nicanor's plan? He told all the slaves, merchants in the area... If you come with me to Israel, I'm going to sell to you slaves at an unprecedented low cost. I'm going to sell you a slave, a single slave for a talent of silver. You could buy 90 Jews for one talent of silver. And again, Nicodemus' plan was to solve the debt. If you do the math, if he's selling 90 Jews for a talent of silver, he plans to take 180,000 Jews as slaves. He gathers all the slave merchants... They come with their money, they come with their bonds necessary to take the slaves into captivity, and they get on boats, and they land on the shores of Eretz Israel. Now at no point in the war did Yehuda Maccabee have more than 5,000 men in under his dominion. And they land with 40,000 foot soldiers, 7,000 cavalry. Yehuda with his less than 5,000 men, and there's now going to be a war, and the results of the war are going to be catastrophic because... 180,000 Jews are going to be sold into slavery. But here's a more frightening part Nicanor landed with 40,000 men. But along the way to the battle, he picked up another 20,000 men, many of whom were Jews who were Mishavnim, who wanted to fight against the Torah loyalists. They waged the war, and not only did Yehuda and his men win, they killed 9,000 of Nicanor's soldiers, but as significantly, they captured the slave merchants and captured their money. Now the Maccabee had all the arms that he needed, he had all the money he needed to buy munitions and supplies and etc., and now he was a very, very powerful force to be reckoned with. For an entire year there was no major battles, because Antiochus realized the only way he could win would be a major decisive battle, and he was so desperate that he decided actually to break the Second Treaty with Rome. You see, when he sends his general, Isaiah, out to conquer the Jews, he sends Isaiah with 60,000 foot soldiers, again, about 7,000 cavalry, and an entire garrison of elephants. Now, an elephant is a huge, huge behemoth. Have you ever seen crowd police, when they'll show up with horses, a horse weighs 2,000 pounds. You could be the most powerful man in the world, you can't stand in front of a horse. A horse will plow through a row of men like it's nothing, But that's not an elephant. An elephant weighs upwards of 14,000 pounds, and there's no way a human being can stop it. There were no tanks, there were no aircraft. We're dealing with hand-to-hand combat, and when the Zayas lands on these shores with an entire garrison of elephants, everyone knew what the outcome would be. They would wrap these elephants, gird them in steel, they would give them grape rinds to eat, which made them somehow very angry. There'd be archers on top, and the elephants would charge through and break through all bounds. 60,000 <coughs> infantry, 7,000 cavalry, entire garrison of elephants. They fight against the what's left of the Jewish nation. And one of the brothers, Shimon, becomes Shimon Meimit Pilim. What Shimon would do is he would jump on the elephant, stab, jump out, jump from elephant to elephant, killing all the elephants. And not only did they win that war, <coughs> they destroyed that, na- destroy that army, sent Leziahs running, and they killed almost every one of those elephants in battle. At the end of that battle, they went to find Shimon, and they couldn't find him. Unfortunately, he was killed, and an elephant fell on him. But in fact, they won that war, and they routed the Yavanim, and effectively kicked them out of Eretz That is the 25th day of Kislev in 165 BCE. On the 25th day of Kislev, 168 BCE, Antiochus entered Yishalayim. Three years later, on the 25th of Kislev, Judah Maccabee won the war, and it says to his men, Na le let us go up to Jerusalem." And the victorious army began marching to Jerusalem. and they got to the Kod they got to the base of Mikdush, and as soon as they got there, they tore Kriya, because the base of Mikdush was in shambles. Initially, it was great sport for Antiochus to... Do what he wanted to do there, but it was basically desolate. No one had been there for years. There was grass growing in the cracks. It was filthy, it was dirty. They tried beginning to clean up the chatzar, begin cleaning up the areas that they could. And in fact, the first menorah was made out of shpudim. There were no kalim left. They took metal rods and basically put together, fashioned a a menorah. But all of the beauty of the world was gone. They tore Kriya because this was not the base of Migdash that they had left three years earlier. So here's the question. Is there a sane person who could have looked at that and said, Wow, I told you that. The power of the Jews. Look at the power of the Jews, how powerful they are. Is there a sane person who could watch Kohenim <coughs> take a small band of men and win against the most powerful nation in the world and say it's not a miracle? But that's what the moral is saying. The morale says that if it weren't for the miracle of oil, the people there looked at the Jews and said, yeah, you see that? I always told you, give a Jew a 22, bright boys, those good fighting men Jewish army. The problem is, how could anyone say that? How could anyone think that? It's so miraculous, so beyond description. How could you or I think that? How could they have thought that? And I'd like to share with you that this is exactly what the morale is teaching us. From the vantage point of history... Looking back, you see clearly who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, and you see the miracle of the time. But if you're living in the t- times, you're living in those days and ages, it's very, very difficult to see that clearly. And it looks like <clears> the <throat> they were fight, they were brave warriors. They fought the war. Okay, it was good, They they had success. But it wasn't seen as a miracle. And it wasn't until they saw the little bit of oil that couldn't possibly last eight days, and that that revealed back to them the miracle of the battles, because until that point they felt that it was their war, their fight, their might, and they didn't recognize it as a naysar Hashem. And this would be a very difficult explanation. And you might say to me, it can't be, if it weren't for the fact that you and I lived through about the same experience as described in the Megillah. About 50 years ago, and the Jewish nation lived through a miracle of maybe far greater proportions and maybe far more of a revelation of Hashem's hand. And that is the Six-Day War. If you understand what happened during the Six-Day War, it was 1967, there were 3 million Jews living in Israel, surrounded by 100 million Arabs. But I'd like to you know, understand what that means. And the land ratio of the Arabs versus the Jews was 650 to 1. Israel was a tiny little sliver of a nation the size of New Jersey, not even the size of New Jersey, because it wasn't as large as it is now. But even more than that, the Arab nations were spending four times as much per year on armament, on equipment, on supplies, as were the Jews. Now we think of the Arabs as some uh, hashish-smoking, turban-wearing primitives, But I believe that's a very false misunderstanding. There were highly trained armies, the Egyptians, the Syrians, even the Jordanians. The USSR invested incredible amounts of time, resources, and money to train the Egyptians to train the Syrians. As a matter of fact, Israel was afraid to shoot down a plane. Anytime an Egyptian plane came over Israeli airspace, Israel was afraid to shoot it down. Why? Because it might well be flown by a Russian Soviet army officer. You see, there were so many Soviet officers training the Egyptians, training the Syrians, that Israel was afraid to shoot down planes because it might cause an international incident that a Soviet soldier has been killed over Israeli airspace. But to give you an illustration of how serious the times were, I was a little boy at the time, I was in grade school, and I remember that they made an appeal. The Six Day War began, And the next day in school they asked us to go home and bring in bedsheets. Bedsheets. Why bedsheets? Because everyone knew there would be so many casualties, so many Israeli soldiers were going to be killed or wounded that they couldn't possibly have enough bedsheets in the hospitals. They asked the Jewish people around the world to do what they could, and they asked our school to gather bedsheets because that was one of the things that were needed. But interestingly enough, the six-day war was not won in six days. The Six-Day War was won in six hours. Because, you see, the real battle was the Egyptian air force against the Israeli air force. And during the first six hours of the war, almost every single Egyptian airplane was destroyed on the ground. On the ground. Once the Egyptians had no air cover, basically Israel could do what they want. They could enter the Sinai, they could take the Golan Heights, because there was no air cover. But it was the first six hours of the war that really determined the future. Time magazine ran an article after the war describing something curious. You see, Egypt and Israel are pretty close. And Egypt realized that if there'd be a war, likely the Israelis would attempt to bomb the Egyptian air bases. So what the Egyptians did was, for every hangar that contained a plane, they built right next to it a decoy hangar. So every single airport had a plane, a hangar with planes. Right next to it was a decoy hangar that was empty. Therefore, even if Israel somehow managed to bomb the airport, there was only a 50 percent chance of them actually knocking out the planes, because every other hangar would be containing nothing. Only some hangars had the planes; others were empty. Therefore, it was a good plan for them to protect their planes. They discovered after the war that almost every bomb the Israeli air force dropped was a direct hit on the hangars containing the planes, and almost every single hangar that was the decoy that was empty was left untouched. But here's the of part. And that same time article d- reports that the West Point cadets were given a challenge. They were given a challenge after the war to plan the taking of the Golan Heights. You see, in those six days, what Israel did was not just expand their borders incredibly, not just beat out armies that were surrounding them every side, and they took an entire huge track of the Sinai Desert, they took the, the Golan Heights, and it was considered a miraculous vi- victory to the extent that the West Point cadets were given a senior thesis. Their senior thesis was to plan the taking of the Golan Heights. Their professor gave them topography maps, gave them access to computers, and access to other... Various books and etc., and their senior thesis was to plan the taking of the Golan Heights. They were given three months of the assignment and told to come back with it. After a few days, the students come back to their professor and say, Sir, based on the sheer heights of the cliffs, based on the weakness of the Israeli armaments, the strength of the Jordanian footholds over there, Syrian footholds, there is no way to possibly plan the taking of the Golan Heights because it's impossible. The professor looked at the maps, looked at the strengths of the various battalions, he agreed, and he gave them another thesis. But here's the point. Israel took the Golan Heights. They beat their army. They took over the entire Sinai Desert. They did that which any human being would recognize as physically impossible. They won a war against such odds, against such incredible, preposterous odds. And here's the point. What message does it say to us? Unfortunately, the message is the same as what the morale explained then. How many Jews at that moment said, it's a Yad Hashem, it's clearly an ace, it's clearly a miracle. And even we who claim to be Torah-loyal Jews, how clearly do we see it? How clearly do we see the miracle of a small little band, 650,000 Jews occupied Palestine when they declared their independence in 1948? surrounded then by millions, 50 million Arabs, with no army whatsoever, with no training. And not only did they survive and they win that war, they win the 56th War, they win the sixty-seven War, they're now considered the powerful, powerful Goliath of the area. They're now considered such a superpower that they can easily beat every one of their enemies as well as all the enemies combined at any time. And if you study the events and look what happened, you say to yourself, this is the Yad Hashem, this is miraculous, this is beyond description. But to do that, you have to stop. You have to look at the events, you have to ask yourself, what are the odds? What are the odds of this happening? What are the odds of this succeeding? And what the moral is telling us is that you can live amongst miracles. Yehuda Maccabee and his men lived day after day, week after week, they fought a battle for three years. And to the Jews living at the time, it looked like, wow, him, powerful makimim, I told you that. Look at that. And they didn't see the nace. How could it be? How could him? it's like a Rish Yeshiva leading his Yeshiva in battle against the Marine Corps. We're going to take on the U.S. Marine Corps. Come on, Rishul Kamensky and the Philadelphia Yeshiva. Let's go. We're going to take on the U.S. Marine It's absurd. You can't fight those battles. A Kohen is a, is a, he's a Kohen. He teaches a Torah. He works in the base of Migdash. He's not a soldier. You can't have Ma'atim destroy, rob him trained, powerful forces. It doesn't work. Yet the morale explains to us that if it weren't for the miracle of the oil, they would have seen it as yot, yot, yot. It's just nature. It's good. it's It helps a little bit, I guess. But it wasn't a miracle. And I believe there's no clearer example of exactly that than the fact that we, the Jewish nation, now occupy our land. After 1900 years of exile, we now occupy our land, have rebuilt it from a barren wasteland if you asked Mark Twain what the country looked like in 1880, he described it as desolate, barren, There was nothing, sand dunes. And now you see a metropolis built up. You see city-states that rival any cities in Europe, and you see the most powerful nation in the region, and what you see is the Yad Hashem. But as Moral explains, you have to open your eyes to see it. You open your eyes, you see the nace. if you don't open your eyes, you don't see it, and I believe this is something to think about when we light Hanukkah candles. Yes, Hashem saved us back then, but it's every generation. It's time after time. This is a very long, bitter gullus. And every generation, they rise against us, and every generation, Hashem saves us. And the miracles are more clear and more clear, but you have to stop, come through the static, recognize the miracles, and then you see the Yad Hashem. And I'd like to close with one story that I think well encapsulates this, this exact example. There was a book written called The Seventh-Day Soldier Speak. Now, I read, I heard this story told over by somebody, and I had a great difficulty getting the book. First I want to tell you the story, and then I want to explain to you why I had to get the book. The story goes like this. These were basically, the book was written by soldiers who lived through the six days. The name of the book, again, is The Seventh-Day Soldier Speak. This was the day after, so to speak, the six days, soldiers recounting their experiences during the... Six Day War. One story was written by uh, Kibbutznik. He was a fellow who was completely irreligious, certainly before the war, and he describes that he was the lead jeep heading into the Sinai. Basically, the orders were for them to drive into the Sinai, and he was the driver of that jeep, and the rest of the rest of the battalion was to follow behind him. In any case, he starts driving with four men with him along in the tank. I'm sorry, in the jeep, and they're driving and they're driving. He's about 50 kilometers into the desert when he realizes that he's alone. You see, when you drive through sand, you're kicking up sand, there's no communication, you can't see. And he was 50 miles deep into the Sinai when he realized that there was nobody following him. He was just those four soldiers alone in the Sinai desert. And then they look up and they see that there were a few MiGs, a few Egyptian planes who had not been destroyed, and they were spotted. And the Egyptian planes saw that there was an Israeli jeep driving through the desert. He says he stopped the tank. He told the men, run out. They ran into the sand. They all spread out, lie down full face in the sand. And he describes when the Egyptian planes came low, they began flying as low as they could. Remember, there was no... This is the desert. There's no trees, nothing they're going to hit. And they could fly as low as they wanted. And they began strafing. They could feel the bullets... ripping up the sand. And the planes pass... And he stands up and he looks left and he looks right and he sees none of the Israeli soldiers were hit. But the Egyptians realize they missed. So the planes turn around and they come back for a second pass. He says to men, lie down. They lie down face down in the sand. And again, he describes the bullets ripping up the sand. And again, the planes pass. He stands up untouched and all of his men untouched. Again, the Egyptians realize they'd missed. So they come for a third pass come from the third pass, face down in the sand, bullet stripping up the sand, and again they stand up. But now the Egyptians realize that they had missed three times, and they were not going to take a fourth miss. He describes that on the fourth pass, the Egyptian planes dropped napalm. Napalm is a petroleum byproduct. It explodes into a fireball on impact. He describes the searing heat as the napalm exploded all around him, and as the Egyptian planes passed, they suddenly they saw the Israeli jets were chasing them. The Egyptian planes ran out. He stood up and he looked at all of the soldiers and every single one of them were not scratched, were not hurt. Now when I heard someone tell this story, I said, I must get this book. I went on Amazon, used books, I couldn't get it, I couldn't get Finally I got the book. And when I read the book, I read it detail for detail exactly as I, said, as I told it to you. But here was the interesting part. It was the end of the story that really caught my eye. After living through this, and after describing these events, the four passes of the plane, the strafing bullets, the napalm, and standing up realizing it was untouched, he concludes with these words, I guess we got lucky. I want to drop the book. What did you say? I guess we got lucky. That's your conclusion? You lived through a being being You were like... You're talking about shooting ducks in a barrel. You're talking about shooting fish. You're talking, you're, you're right there. And bullets, napalm, nothing happens. I guess we got lucky. But the sad reality is that most Jews, most of our brethren, and I'm sorry to say even ourselves, we live through Nisan, we live through miracles, and we say, yeah, okay, it's nice, it's good, it's wonderful, you know. But do we see the Yad Hashem? And I think that's what the moral is saying to us. Unless you stop, unless you contemplate, unless you realize the incredible miracles... They'll pass right by you. You won't even understand it. The fact that the Jewish nation is alive, the fact that we now occupy our land, and the fact that we see every sign of Mashiach coming, we still keep the same Torah, <clears throat> we learn the same halachas of and Rava, we wear the same tzitzits and the same tfilin as Rashi and Tosas, the fact that our nation keeps its way, the fact that we reoccupy our land, the fact that we learn Torah, Torah flourishes as it never did before, is the clearest sign that we are at, 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 at the time of Mashiach coming. All we have to do is cut through the haze, see the Anashem, Hashem, and recognize where we are and why Hashem does things. Hashem grants us the wisdom and understanding to do that and use the Hanukkah days properly. And now, I'd like to open the floor to questions, thoughts, observations. You can either type them in, or you could raise your hand if you're brave. Please feel free to raise your hand. I'd love to call on you because that will save my voice for a moment. Uh, if you're shy or you'd prefer typing in, you could type in the question. Um, I also want to mention one more time so that I don't forget the 10 really dumb mistakes um, that very small couples make is in, is in print now. It's in the swarm stores. It's also on schmooz.com. If you like, you can pick it up in the swarm stores or Amazon. But if you go to schmooz.com, there's a big advantage and that is that if you purchase the book not only is it now on a discount it's 19.95 till the end of Hanukkah, but if you purchase it now not only do you get the discounted price you also get three bonuses number one you'll get the three, 10 really dumb mistakes audiobook you'll get the ebook and you get the also the marriage transformation bootcamp the audiobook is a professionally recorded uh, audiobook of the of the 10 really dumb mistakes i worked with a sound engineer i got special equipment and I narrated the book, and it came out beautifully. Baruch it came out very nicely. That, by the way, is a 1999 value. Um, you'll get that as a bonus. You'll get the ebook, which is you know you can read it on the, your Kindle or or whatever you read your whatever you your ebook. And you will get the marriage transformation bootcamp. Marriage transformation bootcamp is an online seminar, six part online seminar that I gave a number of years ago. It was professionally recorded and put together, and it it contains all the workbooks, all of the videos, the audios etc. It's a very, very comprehensive program. So if you go to the and order the 10 really dumb mistakes, not only did you get the hardcover for just 1995, you'll also get the audiobook, ebook, and the merit Information book camp as a free bonus. It's my Hanukkah gift, so please uh, please avail yourself of it. Please, please take advantage of it. Okay, now please feel free to raise your hand with questions and etc. Um, okay, Bach, you have your hand up. Let's see. I'm going to allow you to talk. And I believe you have the floor.
1: Rabbi, Hi. wonderful discussion tonight. Thank you so much. I'm Thank enjoying you. it while watching my candles. Thank so you. this this goes back to, to your book. So um I have a son who is dating long term um it's not a long term relationship. It's been a couple of a couple of months and they live in uh different cities. So he said to me uh, I'm going to learn with her And Learn about relationships And I said to him It's my understanding that You're not looking for a harusa You're looking for a wife So you should learn about relationships with a man And she should learn Separately and then whatever So um Then I, I thought that your book would be a good source uh, Having said that He said, no, it's either I learn with her or not at all. I said, okay, fine, talk to a rabbi. If he says it's okay, then I'll back down. So he talked to the rabbi, and after Shabbos, he told me, well, we're going to learn together, but we're going to learn Parsha. I'm like, fine. So he still needs to learn about relationships. So one thing is, what is your opinion about people in Shadokim learning together
2: uh-huh.
1: learning something parsha or learning relationships uh-huh. and um, I know that there's sort of a, there's a group that that don't do anything together but uh-huh. he's, he's um, more on the modern side and besides, if he's going to say to me I'm only going to learn if I can do it with her I want him to learn
0: Okay. So Good. Okay, fine go question. So let me let me comment. So first of all, um <clears throat> generally speaking, the more time a couple spend together, the less likely they are to know clearly whether there's the right one or the wrong one. So but that as a background. Um if they're going to learn, so I, I highly recommend <clears throat> actually reading this book together. I, I'm fine with couples. In fact, couples ask me, should they read the ten really dumb mistakes together? And the answer is yes, provided one thing. You see, I wrote the book with both men and women in mind, and there's a man's part and a woman's part, but you see, here's the the critical point. Men typically do not understand women, women typically do not understand men, so there's a tremendous educational piece for both. A man has to learn to understand his wife, and a wife has to learn to understand his husband. But and both of them need to understand not just what they don't understand, they need to understand what their spouse doesn't understand about them so that they can better explain it. So I think the book is very, very helpful, and provided both of them are reading to learn their part, not to point fingers. See, see, that's Rabbi said You, that's what you need to work on. Provided you're learning to understand what you can do to improve your marriage, or in this case, your, your re- relationship, I think it's a fine thing to learn together, to read together. Uh, in general, I don't counsel couples spending that much time together, the the less, again, because it doesn't really help. Because, you, as you said, you're not looking for a chavrusa, so you're looking to see if this person is the right one for you. But the point is, certainly, you know, if they're going to learn this kind of thing together, I, have, I I don't have any problem with it. Um if they're going to learn parsha together, listen, what, what can I tell you? If is it better than going to the movies? Absolutely. Uh, you know, so what, what am I going to tell you? if that's If that's the question... If the question is, should they waste time or learn Parsha together, let them learn Parsha together. Uh, again, I prefer them to learn a book like this together because it might help them get closer to understanding to what it is they need in a marriage, what they need in a in a spouse, in a partner, and hopefully be able to make the decision of, is this the right one for me or not? But again, generally speaking, they'd be better off learning than doing other things, but that's just some of my thoughts on it. Okay, Thank I hope cla- so Okay, That's very clear. Okay, my pleasure. Okay, okay bye okay, Avram, it looks like uh it looks like you have the floor Avram. uh let me see if I can give you the floor yes, yes you do Shalom, hi um, Freyla 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 Freyla. um I had an
2: interesting scenario that happened I was wondering what the uh, uh, take would be like how it would have been a better way to view it or uh, whatever mm-hmm. um something that I was learning before marriage was. You know how to um you know to, to clean and help out around the house a little bit um even even to impress and whatever you know, you know go to people's houses you know fresh office meal you help bring something in to, to put in the garbage or put in the dishwasher or whatever yeah. you know it's this way when you're going to get married you help around your your parents house and your in-laws' house or whatever um and then of course during the first year of marriage um it was insisted i should never help because <laughs> I've been learning for years to help clean and help around the house. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do good, it. Good, good, good. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess, we're both speaking two separate languages, I and mean, you know, of course, it became a little irritating at times. I was wondering what would be like a different perspective. I guess, when such a scenario would come up, uh, what would be that? Uh, I guess an like, interesting how
0: um, first my of all, wish. say thank you very much. I'll l- enjoy my one year of being like a melech very happily, very gratefully, because I know the rest of my life I ain't going to be a melech and take it and 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 and, and enjoy it. Um, <clears throat> what am I going to say? You, you got to roll with the punches. You got to, you know, life brings many different situations. And one great secret: you're never going to know your spouse, not when you first get married, not after ten years, after twenty years, you're still learning. After thirty years, it's a constant learning process. Because guess what? You change, she changes. So you got to roll with the punches. You have to be ever astute. <clears throat> the most important... Let me let me borrow from the book. The two most important words that you'll ever say in your marriage are the words, That's strange. That's strange. You say them to yourself, not to your spouse. Because <clears throat> what happens is, your spouse does something that makes no sense. No sense whatsoever. So what happens is, we reach our conclusion. She's either mean or... Whatever, whatever conclusion we reach. If you say the words, That's strange... And you begin the curious scientific inquiry. Why would a sane, rational woman react this way to such and such an event? Why would a balanced, healthy man get so bent out of shape over this and this and this? If you say the words, that's strange, then you open yourself up to possibly understanding the inner world of your spouse. Because I guarantee... Your spouse is normal, your spouse is sane, your spouse is rational, but they feel differently about what happened than you do. And every time we get into a fight with our spouse, it's always because I assume that my experience defines reality. My spouse thinks as I do, my spouse feels as I do, and therefore what she's doing is absolutely irrational, absolutely makes no sense, she's flighty, she's whatever, and we use our, we demonize, we use our entire vocabulary to create this monster and what happens is we fundamentally misunderstand our spouse. If you say to yourself the words, that's strange, the next time your spouse does something, you say to yourself, that's strange, why would you do that? Let me try to understand, let me better understand, why does this bother, her? why? And by the way, a lot of times if you ask the questions in that way, you know, I really I, I see you're upset, and the, the last thing in the world I'd want to do is upset you. Help me understand why it's you're, upset, you're upset so I can know for next time better how to avoid it. If you say it that way, I think it would get a lot of further. But that's, um, I'm cheating. I'm giving you part of the book. So um, so go ahead, look for it. And uh, did you buy the book yet, Avram? Uh,
2: I got the pre-publication.
0: Okay, did you read it through? Not
2: yet,
0: not fully yet. Ah, when did you get I'm not going to ask when you got it. You got the pre-publication last week, so you have time. Okay, till next week. Okay. Hey,
2: very,
0: can I ask a question on the uh, Let me hold because I have another question I want to take. So maybe you send me it by email if you can, because uh, if possible. All right. Okay. Okay. Very good. Okay. Okay. Someone typed in a question that I, I actually want to address. Um, <clears throat> uh, how could one? How can a man know where to draw the line between Derek eretz and stubbornness when it comes to pursuing a shidduch with a woman he thinks is Bashar? Especially if one person owns their mistakes and tries to change, but the other shuts down and refuses to communicate. This is a shidduch where marriage was already discussed and seemed very close, but in pause after one disagreement. Okay, now, let me be very blunt. Many times people make mistakes. They make mistakes before they're married, they make mistakes after they're married. It could be that this person is making a major mistake, and it certainly sounds that way. You know, people, certainly women may overreact, if we got into a disagreement, that means our entire marriage is going to be fighting and screaming, and yelling, and they don't realize that in the best of marriages, unfortunately, there are hurt feelings. Sometimes there are voices that are raised, but there's always going to be stuff going on. It just—I don't think a marriage exists that doesn't have stuff that doesn't have. I hate to say the word fighting, and you know, <clears throat> the the strength of your marriage is not based on whether you never fight or even you hardly ever fight. It's are you able to repair and move on, improve and grow. And most couples fight on a, you know, hopefully not so regular basis, but it's part of the reality, because in the thick and thin of life, it's very hard for me not to step on my spouse's toes. We're of different genders, I don't know what her sensitivities are, and certainly in the beginning, you're going to do things that are hurtful to your spouse, certainly without meaning it, and certainly without intending it, but it just, it happens, and oftentimes things escalate, and before you know it, there's words being said, Things being, and things happen. Now, if you've never been married before, you're shocked the first time you get into a fight. Oh my goodness, that means we're heading into a divorce. A young couple gets into a fight, and they're not headed to a divorce. They have to learn how to repair the rift, they have to learn how to understand each other better, and as long as they repair the rift, things go on, and they can have a beautiful marriage. And there are couples, especially in the beginning, number of years, who have tough times getting used to each other, because getting married is not just a uh, intuitive sort of, you get married and everything's fine. It's a learning process, and it really to learn to take another human being into your midst and to really accept their way as normal and acceptable, even though it's different than your way, and to learn to live together in peace is far from simple. Everyone assumes I'm an easygoing person. It's my spouse that's the problem. The problem is your spouse is difficult, you're difficult. We all have idiosyncrasies, we all have quirks, we all have our shtick, and learning to live together in peace and harmony with, with another human being is far from simple. So it could be that when you're this person you're dating saw that you got into a disagreement, she reached conclusion. oh my goodness, it must be we're incompatible, and it means if we'd get married, we'd be fighting and screaming, and she's dead wrong. And it could be you're meant to be, and it could be she's just overreacting. And I think it's well worth your asking her to see someone and talk to someone, etc., and to go through the process, because most likely she's overreacting to one disagreement. However, you should know something. If you do that, and you ask her to see someone, and ask her to speak to someone, and whether she does or she doesn't, if she decides that, that's it, I'm breaking this off, after you've done your foolish thoughtless, and you've done your best, you have to say, I get it, Hashem runs the world. And there are many times when Hashem puts a thought into a person's head, I don't want to marry this person. It looks great, it looks perfect, but it isn't. And Hashem will put a thought into that person's mind that for whatever reason, they decide to end the shidduch decide to end the process, and that's basheret, that's where Hashem runs the world. And just because she seems matim, and just because it seems that it's going the right way, doesn't mean it is. So the bottom line is, I think you should pursue it, and you should do everything in your power to pursue it, and especially ask her to speak to someone older and wiser to get some perspective. But after you've done that, if it doesn't succeed, that's when you say, I get it, Hashem runs the world. And many times Hashem will do things, orchestrate things in this way, specifically because you're not made for each other, you're not meant to be together, and it would be disastrous if you got married. By the way, how many times you see Chassan and Khaled are so infatuated, so infatuated, and then they get married, and they're fighting and screaming and yelling, and Hashem, you're So don't always assume just because it looks good, it is good. Again, I agree with you, your eshtalah should be to get her to talk to someone, because this is probably normal, and it's probably just expected, and it's not a big deal, but if at the end of your attempts, your serious attempts to do that, if in fact she doesn't come around, then again, I think you just accept the fact that this is Hashem's will, <coughs> and, uh, and this is the situation. Uh, okay, let me take one other question here. Given the distressing political situation in Eretz is there anything we can do, or do we continue to learn Torah, do chesed grow, etc., because those are our marching orders so the answer is if you are in a position to do something you absolutely should do something get the joke we can't do anything if you're <clears throat> if you're a member of the Knesset if you're a senator if you're Cong- you can do something but anyone else what are you going to do you can vote and you should vote and you should do what you can and and but what am I you and I what are we going to do so we read the newspaper then we should you have to pay attention to what's going on <clears throat> but at the end of the day it's Hashem's world Shem runs the world. Our job is to use the world in the ways of the world. If you're in a position of power and influence, you should use your power and influence. But for the vast majority of us citizens, we're not in positions of power, we're not in positions of influence. We're supposed to know that Hashem runs the world, we do what we can, we do what we're supposed to do, but we know that it's still God's world, even after all we've been through, even after almost 2,000 years of exile. Hashem still orchestrates the world. Hashem still protects us. Hashem still delivers these very frightening moments where it looks like it's the end. It's the end. It's the end. And suddenly there's a, it doesn't end, and, and the bright lights come on, and gone is Antiochus. Gone is Haman. Gone is Paro. Gone is every enemy who tried to kill us. So, you know, again, if you're in position of power and influence, exercise that. If not, do what you can do. Mostly, we're going to do, dominate, etc. Okay, um, uh, in answer to this question, any advice on how to ask her to see someone? Ask her to see someone. Tell her to read the book. The 10 really dumb mistakes the very smart couples make. By the way, I guarantee, whether you're married or not married, if you read this book, you will have a different understanding of marriage. How do I know this? Because I spent 10, almost 15 years working with hundreds and hundreds of couples. You know, I got married like everybody else got married. I was a f- yeshiva I thought it was a fine yeshiva and because I had a chinuch in Musr, I knew everything that I needed to know about marriage. I was an expert on marriage. And then I got married. And I discovered I knew nothing. Zero. Ephes. Now, Baruch Hashem, we have a great marriage, etc. But I didn't know much about marriage. I, you know, something bothered my wife. I tried to work on it. Something she did bother me. She tried. And we, everything was fine and well. But once I started, you know, through the shrews, I began working with couples, and couples began coming to me with their problems and troubles... And then I began seeing that there's really an awful lot of things that you and I don't know about marriage. And I began reading. I read pretty much every popular secular marriage book that's out there. I read countless numbers of Chazal, the various uh, country for for Chassanam. I spoke to Rabbanam. I spoke to marriage <coughs> marriage counselors. And after counseling literally hundreds and hundreds of couples over the course of 10 to 15 years, I put together what I think is an approach to marriage, what a marriage needs, what a relationship needs, understanding gender differences, understanding the tools that bond, understanding what's needed, and I put it together, and it took me a fortune of time. To be honest with you, I finished writing this book eight years ago, but it wasn't the same book that I, that I rewrote now, and it's a much, much better book. I highly recommend that you pick up this book and ask your kala, to, or this person you're going out with, to, to read it as well. And I have a feeling when she reads it, she'll have a totally different understanding of marriage, and that alone may may help. So ask her to see someone. If not, at least ask her to read the book. It'll be good for education, you know, in general. Again, to get the book, it's on or You can get it in the shmoo- in any of the swarm stores. You can get it on Amazon. But again, if you buy it now on theshmoos.com, it's on sale at 19.95. And in addition to which, you get the three bonuses. You get the audiobook, you get the ebook, and you get the marriage transformation boot camp as a free bonus. It's on for till the end of Hanukkah, and maybe slightly after, I'm not sure. But in any case, I please go to shmuz.com, theshmu com. You'll see a banner on top. Click on it, and then you'll be able to not just purchase the book for 19 dollars By the way, that's including shipping, free shipping. So the book will be just 19 including free shipping. Plus you'll get the free the three free bonuses. You'll get the audiobook, the e-book, as well as the Marriage Transformation bootcamp. Camp. I urge you, please please go to the shmooze.com please look it up. Um, and I wish you much at freilich and Hope you have a good Shabbos, and see you next week. Thank you.